Tune your ear to wisdom. Cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000-year-old book. Hey, my friend, welcome back. I've got a question for you today. What are you looking forward to? Is there anything that you're like just anxiously awaiting? Yeah, maybe you're a worker and you're looking forward to the weekend or you're a student looking forward to, you know, holidays. Or maybe you're like me and you're just looking forward to an afternoon nap. But I submit to you that what you are looking forward to most strongly in the future is what is going to have the most powerful impact on your life in the present. And before we unwrap that thought, I want to pause and ask the King to enlighten us on the journey. Thank you, Father, for this book. Thank you that we get to study it. But most of all, Lord, thank you that this book points us to you because we want to see you more clearly. We want to be enraptured by who you are and what you're doing in our lives and what you're doing in this cosmos because it is all about your kingdom and all about your glory. And we want to be a part of that. So, Lord, we ask that today you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear and see the words of the Spirit to us in the pages of this book. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So, what are you looking forward to? Well, put yourself in Paul's sandals, so to speak. Uh, When he wrote the book of Philippians, he was in a Roman jail of some sort, shackled with a prison guard. And I don't know what Roman jails were like, but I'll bet they're about the furthest thing from the Hilton that you can imagine. So I wonder, what was Paul looking forward to the most? You know, when you read the book of Philippians, you realize that the answer to that question, surprisingly, is not his release from jail. That's not what he was looking forward to. He had something else in mind. And we're going to see it here at the end of his prayer that we've been studying for the last few episodes, and we're going to keep on studying it today. So we'll start at the beginning of the prayer in Philippians 1.9. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in insight with the ability to discern what is best so that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I love this prayer for so many reasons, but today the part of the prayer that I really want to key on is this one little phrase, the day of Christ. He said, I want you to be pure and blameless until or on the day of Christ. What is this day that he's looking forward to? Now, I say that he's looking forward to it uh, because, for one thing, he mentions this day at least three times in this book. We've already encountered one. We didn't stop there too long. But back in Philippians 1.6, we read, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Clearly, this is something that's in his mind. In fact, I think that there are two pivotal days in Paul's mind that shape his thinking more than any other. He mentioned both of them back in verses 5 and 6. He said, from the first day when he first met the Philippians and they first accepted the gospel of Christ, and the last day when God will complete the work that he began in us. 
the day of Christ Jesus. The first day and the last day are the two most significant days, and these loom large in his heart and mind, and they've shaped everything about his character. And I believe they need to shape our character as well. So we're going to look at this day of Christ and try to understand what it means. So think about the day of Christ. What do you suppose that phrase even means? The day of Christ, like some special day of Christ. Is it like what, his birthday or something? Yeah, maybe it's this Christmas, right? Oh, I know. He's, He's saying if you behave really good all year long, then on Christmas, he'll bring you presents. No, that's not the day of Christ. Um, But what is it? What is the day of Christ? Well, to understand that, we need to remember that Paul was a Jewish scholar of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there is a concept that is taught throughout all of the prophets. In fact, at least eight different prophets speak about one specific theme. It's one of the most prevalent themes in the whole Bible. But it's also, in my opinion, one of the most overlooked themes because we just don't study it very often. And the theme I'm talking about is the day of the Lord. Like I said, at least eight different prophets speak about this and prophetically proclaim that there is coming in the future a day that they refer to as the day of Yahweh or the day of the Lord. And then when we get into the New Testament, it is a prevalent theme there. Almost every writer of the New Testament refers to this day in one way or another. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, to understand that, we're going to start by going back into Paul's Bible the Old Testament, and we're going to trace this theme through as well as we can. Now, when I say we're going to trace it through, uh, I usually like to try to go back to the earliest reference, but in this case, we don't know exactly because uh, the the prophetic books, the major and minor prophets, didn't come with uh, copyright dates on their cover page, so we don't know exactly when they're written, and scholars disagree from one point to another, so it's, it's hard to know which one came first. But I believe that one of the first references was in Isaiah chapter 3, in verse 12, where he says, For the day of the Lord of hosts, the day of the Lord Almighty, shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Jump down to verse 17. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down. The haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. So we're beginning to see a picture of this coming day that is clearly a day of judgment. It's a day where God is going to destroy those who have proudly rejected him. God Almighty is going to come to judge his enemies. And that judgment is referred to as the day of the Lord. Now, Isaiah, a little bit later on in this book, takes a whole chapter to describe this day of the Lord even more vividly. It's in Isaiah 13. And the context of this is that Isaiah is speaking a prophecy against the neighboring empire of Babylon, an evil empire that will come and eventually ravage uh, Judah and Jerusalem. And, And Isaiah is prophetically pronouncing the doom of Babylon. But the A slightly confusing thing about the prophets is that they will often talk about something that's going to happen in the near future, and then they'll prophesy about something that's going to happen in the distant future. And sometimes it's a little unclear uh, which one they're talking to at any particular point in time. They they kind of blend these topics together. And we'll see that here in Isaiah 13, because he's going to describe not only the, the day when Babylon falls as the day of the Lord, but he's looking at the future day, the end of time, when God will finally rid the world of all 
fall of the Babylonian spirit. So let's take a look. Isaiah 13, verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp, every man's heart will melt, terror will seize them, pain and anguish will grip them, they will writhe like a woman in labor, they will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. In the next few verses, you're going to see that it's going to take not just this physical, uh, local view, but it's going to expand into a, a cosmic period of destruction. He says, The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. So again, we see this same theme. It's growing bigger now. It's the destruction of Babylon, but even more so, it is a destruction of all the proud and sinful enemies of God throughout the world. This is a coming day of dark destruction. Now, for the, the Jews who first heard this, they were pretty excited about this. And the reason is because, you know, they were terrified of Babylon. Babylon was a ferocious empire that was going to come and, and just utterly smash them and eat their lunch. And so the idea that Babylon was going to finally be judged and all the enemies of God were finally going to be judged, the, the Israelites would just, you know, they're excited about that. They're pumping their fists and saying, yeah, finally, the enemies of God are going to be judged. Our enemies are going to get what's coming to them, and they're going to be judged because God Almighty is the judge of the world, and he will come and bring justice finally on this planet. So the Jews, therefore, were looking forward to the day of the Lord in one respect. But another prophet, Amos, comes along and says, not so fast. In Amos chapter 5, Amos is speaking not to the Babylonians, but now he's speaking to the, the Jewish people themselves. And he says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. What Amos is saying is, Israelites, you believe that the day of the Lord, God is going to come and judge his enemies. And that's exactly right. But by your behavior, you have become the enemies of God. So you are going to be in his crosshairs. And the target of the wrath of the day of the Lord is coming to you. So don't be looking forward to it. This is something to be terrified of. Okay, so let me give you one more example from the Old Testament. Uh, Joel is one of the what we call the minor prophets. It's the shorter books. But almost his entire book is dedicated to this topic. He, he speaks about it just about more than any other. And Interestingly, he, he looks not only forward, but he's also looking backward because in the recent history, uh, the Israelites had just gone through a devastating locust storm that had wiped out nearly all of the agriculture in the entire country. And uh, it was just incapacitating for the country. And Joel refers to that as the day of the Lord. He says that was a terrible day. That was the day where the Lord brought judgment against Israel for our sins. And he describes some of the sins that brought about this day of the Lord. But he's also looking into the future and he says there is another day coming and it will also be terrible. In fact, it will make these locust storms look like just a, a cloud compared to the, the cosmic angelic armies that are going to be coming in the future. 
So let me just uh, give you a, a couple of examples. Uh, I, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. And listen to how he describes it. He says, It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. And skip down to verse 11. He says, The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? So here, Joel, just like the other prophets, they're anticipating the arrival of a great day of judgment. And it is, when you read these verses and you just let these images settle on you, you it, 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 it should make you tremble. It's a terrifying coming day when God will set things right. And by that, I mean that he will judge the wicked. And why it's terrifying is because every single man and woman on this planet knows in the core of their hearts that they are deserving of this wrath. That's terrifying. But Joel doesn't just leave it as a day of coming terror, because he is one of the prophets who begins to reveal the hope that is also buried in this day. So let's read the next verse. We were just in 2.11. Let's go on to the next verse. And he says, But even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. So here in this prophecy, Joel is giving us a glimpse that even though the dreadful day of the Lord is coming and nothing's going to stop it, there is still hope for those who turn and repent from their sins, relent from their proud rebellion against God, and cry out for God's compassion. And Joel says he is a gracious and compassionate God. Now, this same theme is going to come back at the end of this chapter like a repeated climactic refrain. Listen to these words in verse 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even my servants, both women and men, I will pour out my spirit. In those days, I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So again, this picture of a day that is uh, both great as in wonderful, but also dreadful as in terrifying. The great and terrifying day of the Lord. But listen to this promise, verse 32, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. So once again, we see this picture of a coming terrifying day. But for those who are not God's enemies on that day, it will be a day of deliverance and a day of rejoicing and a day of salvation. 
Now, this particular passage might just sound familiar to you because Peter actually quotes it verbatim on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the crowds were stunned by the appearance of the Holy Spirit who had transformed the people, the Christians, in a visible way. And Peter was Peter explained to them that this transformation is exactly what Joel was talking about when he said, I will pour out my spirit on those days and they will prophesy. And he quotes this whole passage. But what's interesting is he doesn't stop at the pouring out of the Spirit. He goes on to talk about the wonders in heaven above and the signs below on the earth and blood and fire and smoke and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And and if you've read that in the book of Acts, you wonder, well, why did he keep going on to that part? Because that part clearly had not been yet fulfilled. And I believe what Peter was saying is that, yeah, the Spirit has come, the day of the Lord has begun, but it has not completed. It won't be completed until the end of the judgment of God has come forth. And so Peter is telling these crowds, listen, this is evidence that what God promised is coming true, and God will not stop until the entire promise has come true, and the judgment is coming, so you better get ready. So again, he is saying that there is a coming judgment, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, will be saved from the judgment of God. So the day of the Lord, like I said, is this incredibly powerful theme that's woven throughout Scripture, and it should give you chills in your spine to think that the coming judgment of God is unavoidable and real. But it should also give you hope because there is a promise embedded in it that God will not only destroy his enemies, but he will also redeem and deliver those who have given their lives to him. So it is both a day of judgment, but also a day of joy. Now, I already said that this concept was just very, very prevalent in the minds of the the Jewish followers of Christ in those early days. And they they knew that it was still coming. I already said that just about every New Testament author mentions this day in one way or another. Some of them call it the day of wrath or the day of judgment or the day of God's visitation. But Paul speaks about it more than any other. In fact, as you read through Paul, it becomes very clear that this concept is something that has captured his heart and imagination and has shaped him profoundly. To him, it is not just some Old Testament prophecy that's gone away now that Christ has come. No, this is something that is still on the horizon and is something that he is vividly looking forward to. So, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, which is one of his first letters that he wrote, in chapter 5, verse 2, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he's saying, we don't know exactly when it's going to come. It will it will be a surprise to many people, but it is coming. And then in his second letter, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, he says, I don't want you to be upset or alarmed uh, by some prophecy saying that the day of the Lord has already come. He wants to reassure them that the day of the Lord has not come. It is still future. And then he says in verse 5, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So it's clear that he's not only writing about this, but when he was preaching to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians and the Philippians, he was telling them about the day of the Lord. This was a concept that he was been teaching to them. And so when we get to the book of Philippians and he starts talking about it again, it's clear that this is something he has been already talking to them, and now he's just reminding them. But now... An interesting transformation happens in the terminology as Paul goes on in later books that he writes. Look at 1 Corinthians. He uses slightly different terminology. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.8, 
that Christ will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ooh, the day of the Lord has now become the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. He says, I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully so that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of our Lord Jesus. First of all, I want to point out that I think it's really cool that we're going to be bragging on each other on the day of the Lord Jesus. That's what he said. We're going to be bragging. I'm going to be bragging about you. You're going to be bragging about me on the day of the Lord Jesus. God's going to do something amazing. But what I want to really focus in on is that he has taken the words from the Old Testament where called the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, the day of Jehovah God Almighty, and now he's calling it the day of the Lord Jesus. He's revealing to us that the Messiah who has come is the one who is going to bring the judgment of God. The day of the Lord is the day of the Lord Jesus, clearly indicating that Paul has completely come to believe in the full divinity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is now his Lord in the fullest sense of that term. The day of the Lord is the day of Jesus. And so that's what we get when we come to Philippians and now he is calling it, this is one of his last letters, and he's calling it the day of Christ, the day of Messiah. And he's still looking forward to it, but to him it is not just a day of judgment, although that is still in this thought, but it is even more so a day of joy because he knows that God is going to do something fantastic in the lives of the believers who have repented and surrendered their lives to the Messiah. He has begun a good work in them, and he will carry it on until that day, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ Jesus. And so, when he gets on his knees and he prays for the Philippians and for us, he's praying that the love in our heart would explode more and more with knowledge and wisdom and insight, ability to discern what is best so that we may be pure and blameless, sun-judged and stumble-free on the day of the Lord, on the day of Christ Jesus. When we appear in heaven and see God face to face, when the final day of history finally closes in on this planet, those who are here on that day will see Jesus. But for us, it will not be a day of damnation and judgment and destruction, but it will be a day of rejoicing and boasting and celebrating because God Almighty has begun a good work in you so that your love will grow, so that you will be pure and blameless on the day of the Lord. The day when his blazing fire will reveal what is good and what is evil. And when he looks at your soul and mine, he will see the righteousness of Christ Jesus. That is the promise that we get to embrace. So my friend, Paul was thrilled that the day of the Messiah is coming because he knew that it was going to be the day when he will be embraced by the Holy God and be gloated over by Jesus himself, loved like we cannot possibly imagine. And so 
we can be excited that the day of the Lord is coming. But I want to also remind you that we talked last time about this idea of being sun-judged and stumble-free, of being pure down to the core of our soul where the, where the sunlight of God himself shines and shows purity. And we struggled with that question of how can I be pure like that? Well, I want to remind you that Paul is praying that this would be a continual process in your life. A a, a sanctification is a lifelong process. But he is also urging us to look forward to that day when we will see Christ because he knows that if our hearts and minds are set on that coming future day, that it will transform us. It will motivate us to want to be pure, that we'll be ready for his arrival. I have a dog who loves me, and I know that he loves me because every day when I come home, he is the first one to greet me. He just runs up to celebrate my arrival. His tail is wagging. He is just so excited to see me. Every day this happens, except on those days when he has invaded the garbage. And if he's made a mess all over the floor with the garbage, then I know it even before I see it because my dog is as far away from me as he can get. He's cowering in the corner, not because I'm going to beat him, but because he knows I'm going to be disappointed. And so sometimes I think about this when I think about the return of Christ. Now, I know this isn't a perfect analogy because I believe based on the Bible that Jesus, when he returns, is not going to be disappointed with any of his children. He is going to celebrate the reunion as much as we are. But doesn't it motivate you to want to live for him today? I mean, just the thought of his return. I want to be found on that day living a life of faith and obedience and holiness. Wouldn't it be awful to be living a day of sinful selfishness on the day that Christ returns? On that day when he finally rolls back the skies and comes down, I want to be able to race to him, not cowering in the corner, but excited to see him celebrating his return, ashamed of nothing. That's clearly what's motivating Paul, too. He wants to live for his Savior so he will be ready when his Savior returns. Now, I know, like we said last time, that it's easy to talk about these things, but to actually live like that is a whole nother story. And I know that the battle is real for righteousness and holiness in our lives. It's not trivial. But don't give up, my friend, because in the next episode, in the, we're going to study the climactic end of this prayer, and we're going to be reminded of one of the most joyful promises that's going to give us hope in this battle. So you'll have to come back next time to catch that. But in the meantime, let me pray for you right now. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so excited that you are coming back. You left, but you promised that you will return. And on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see you again face to face. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends. I pray for those who are struggling with difficulties or frustrations or addictions or temptations that are wrestling them to their knees. I pray, oh Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see this day and that the certainty of this coming day will give us such a hope and excitement that it will motivate us to live like you like we've never lived for you before. Oh Lord, let us rejoice in your presence on that final day. Thank you, Jesus, that we can. In your name we pray. Amen.
It's been an honor to have you spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart, transform your life, until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.